touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am Jonathan Strickland, your beloved host. And today I have a special guest in the studio, a dear friend of mine, someone I have worked with on stage and in other podcasts and radio plays, Ariel Kristen Kasten. Welcome to Tech Stuff. Hi, everybody. Thank you for letting me be on Tech Stuff, Jonathan. I'm super excited. I am very excited, too. Ariel and I, we, we've been friends for more than a decade now. Oh, man. Making me feel old. Yeah, well, join the club. <laughs> so, Ariel, I, I, I asked her what she wanted to cover. She told me that we could cover whatever we wanted. So I looked back, and there was an email message that was sent in, a listener request. Uh, Peter sent this in via email. And this is an ancient listener request, folks. So, Peter, I apologize that it took so long for us to get there, but I'm really excited that we get to cover it today. Here's what Peter wrote. He said, I recently bought a book called Data Hiding that is about steganography. I looked to see if this is something you have covered but found you had not. I think that this would be an extremely interesting topic. You would be able to cover the ways in which data can be hidden, as well as who uses such techniques like Al-Qaeda, the NSA, malware authors, hobbyists, etc. Yeah, we're going to cover steganography, which uh, is not what I originally thought it was. was. I originally thought it was the study of stegosauri, stegosauruses. Yeah, I thought it was uh, the study of dinosaur calligraphy. So we were both <laughs> on the wrong track, as it turns out. Uh, yeah, so what actually is steganography? Well, steganography is the art of hiding something within something else. It can be simple, like a hidden message in a painting or a photograph, or it can be something really complicated, like an electronic file or message hidden in another file or message. Yeah, yeah. So it's essentially the the art of being able to send a message without people even knowing that you've done so, right? Correct. That, that's, that's the goal of steganography. So uh, the parties in steganography, there there are, you know, this is how we break it down. You've got the sender, that's the person who's created the message and wants to communicate something. Mm -hmm. You have the receiver, which is the person who the message is intended to go to. You have the carrier message, which is the 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 construct that hides the secret message. So this could be whatever, like it could be a painting. The or boring it, note about your cousin's yeah, children. Or it could be a, a soccer ball that happens to have a secret message Ugh. written on the inside of it. That Maybe could be. Wilson was a secret message. It could be that Wilson... <laughs> In Castaway, it was, in fact, a steganogram, which is the other uh, element. So, by the way, there are a lot of Greek words and Greek names and some Roman names, so Latin as well, mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be – all of those are going to be popping up. There are also a couple of other names from other uh, cultures. Uh, I'm an ignorant American, so my pronunciation is going to be awful. And I can barely grasp the American language, which I've grown up with all my life. So mine will be worse. Yeah. So just just letting you guys know that ahead of time. So the steganogram. See, I'm never going to get that steganogram. steganogram. Otherwise do, do, known do, do, as do. the secret message. We're just gonna, I'm going to call it secret <laughs> messages from now on. Uh, and then potentially third parties. So in other words, people who might come into contact with this message. The goal is to make sure that those third parties are never aware that there is a message there in the first place. And if it's done right, they won't be. Yeah. So in other words, you could have a messenger, a go-between, mm -hmm. carry this thing from one person to the other and never know that there was something hidden in there. Although sometimes it's good if they're a confidant because you need to get 
a message to the person who needs to decipher it. Yeah. On how to decipher it. Right, right. If the person who receives the message isn't aware of the method to find it, it doesn't do them a lot of good. So if if you have been able to collude with your receiver, like if I'm sending a message to Ariel and Ariel and I have decided ahead of time, hey, if I ever need to send you a message, this is how I'm going to do it. And this is how you're going to see what the message is. Then we're OK. But yep. if if it's a situation where Ariel and I have been separated for a long time and I need to send her a message and I need it to be secret, I've got to figure out a way to give her instructions as to how to retrieve that message. And sometimes that involves, you know, paying somebody like just tell her to wash the wax off. And we'll explain <laughs> what that means a little bit later. Yep. So. Although uh, they are it, wash the wax off. It's good advice to live by. There we go. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, just in general. So we've got the elements here. Those are your basic elements to to uh, have steganography actually make sense. And now we need to talk about the difference between that and a related art, cryptography. Which, yes, uh, cryptography is the art of making and solving codes. Uh, but anybody can see that it's a code. Right. So if I send a coded message to Ariel... It may be that any third party can't see what the message is, but they know I'm trying to communicate to her. Yeah, because why else would he send me a piece of paper that says, Yeah, unless I've just fallen asleep at my keyboard, <laughs> then clearly I'm trying to say something. So, And then I'm just wasting my time trying to decipher it. Right. So cryptography key- keys in people that something's going on. It lets people know there's some sort of communication. And... uh you might have a pretty simple type of code, like a simple cipher where, you know, the old classic uh, substitution cipher where you substitute one letter for another. The simplest being let's shift all the letters over by one. So and it, uh, whenever I, I write the letter B, I really mean the letter A. Whenever I write the letter C, I really mean the letter B. This is what is called a really bad cipher. <laughs> It's easy to figure out. I don't know. When I try to do the cryptograms in puzzle books, I have <laughs> such a hard time. And it's the same thing. Well, sometimes a substitution cipher can get a little more complicated. So, for example, when you substitute one letter for another, then the next time you substitute a letter, you actually shift over again. So, in other words, the first time you only shift over one letter. The second time you shift over two letters. The third time you shift over three letters. So if you know the the algorithm, if you know the pattern, then when you get the message, you can reverse that and you know to look for it. If you don't know the pattern, then it, you have to spend more time trying to figure out what the pattern is. And while that still is a fairly simple example, things like the um, the Enigma machine in World War II, which was the Germans' way of sending coded messages. They had this machine that had three different – the basic one had three different dials that they would set. And then it had a typewriter and a bunch of lamps. And when you press down a key of a letter, a lamp would light up uh, indicating a different letter. So let's say I I type the letter E to type in Enigma, Mm -hmm. but the letter for N lights up. Then it would actually go a certain number of steps so that the next letter I type would be a totally unpredictable letter if I didn't have an Enigma machine of my own. Well, that's really good because if I tried to write a cipher, I would totally lose place of where I was if I was constantly shifting the letter. Yeah. And my message would be nonsensical both 
decrypted and encrypted. Yeah, exactly. That that is that is the reason why the Germans were using a machine. So that way it could be predictable, but only if both parties had the same style of Enigma machine and they both knew what the initial settings were. Mm-hmm. So part of the communication would include a a key saying this is what you need to set it to. Uh, although technically they were all supposed to have a communication telling them what settings to use each day, and they were never supposed to repeat those settings. Uh, eventually people got lazy, mm-hmm. and that's how those codes were eventually broken by Alan Turing, uh, which you can see in that film. The Imitation Game. The Imitation Game, exactly. So steganography obviously is different from cryptography in that, yes, you're still sending secret messages, but the message itself, the existence of the message is secret. Anybody, any layman looking at the message or the photo or the paper won't know it's there. Right. So you you can still encrypt it. You can still use cryptography. In fact, using both together makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, with steganography, if you've hidden the message well enough and people are not if people don't know to look for it, it's safe to be in plain text to whomever you're sending it to. Uh, depending upon what method you use, because there are a lot of different ones, right? Yeah. Um, um, a great way to further explain it is to go back to the Greek. Cryptography means secret writing. Yep. And steganography means covered writing. I, I paused there because I was really surprised I said it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> well, every time I say it correctly, I will also be surprised. Uh, yeah. So that really that's gets down to the heart of it, right? And the combination of the two allows you to have more secure communication. Now, there's an art to finding hidden messages that have been concealed in this way. Yes, it is called steganalysis, which I tried to look up what the Greek of that meant, and it meant covered, breaking up, loosening of. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's all very repetitive. It just means you're uncovering a secret message. Right. So... Depending upon the type of uh, steganogram that has been sent, you would use a different method to find the meaning. So when we're talking about the modern version of steganography, we're really talking about ones and zeros, digital information. Mm -hmm. So steganalysis is largely concerned with that because that's that's the main way messages are sent these days is through a digital file of some sort that – to an outside view, looks like a normal file. There's nothing that seems remarkable about it. But if you were to analyze the actual digital information of that file, you would start to see patterns that would indicate something hinky is going yes. on. Yes. And in stake analysis, there are two steps to deciphering. And the first is detecting it, um, which if if it is like a handwritten message or something like that, and it's very ob- fairly obvious, you can do it without any special software. Um, but where it does happen so, so much in the digital age, um, there are disk analysis programs that will just look at it for you. Yeah. You actually run your suspected, uh, secret message. So it, it could be very simple. Like a lot of, and a lot of examples I see are photographs that have been uploaded to public forums. And the idea being that, well, when it's in the public eye, no one's paying attention to it because it's just something that we see all the time. Like if you were to post a picture to Facebook, a like lot of, I do. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people do. Then because that's so common, it doesn't tend to raise suspicion. So, first of all, someone has to know that there's something to look for, 
right? Mm -hmm. They have to first be suspicious that there's some form of communication going on. Then they have to start figuring out, all right, how is this communication happening? And then they would have to start targeting the various means of that. And one of those might be photographs. And they'd say, all right, let's take this image that was uploaded to whatever site Mm -hmm. and let's run it through one of these disk analysis programs and see if that comes up with anything that perhaps there's some indication that something's out of place. And it might be something that you looking at would notice if you knew what to look for. Yeah, um, that's called perceptible noise. So sometimes if uh, audio visual files are slightly off, there might be perceptible noise in there. Uh, yeah. So that would just be an indicator, right? Yeah. Something saying something's not right. Now, that can happen naturally. Mm-hmm. You know, like that can just be a problem with the file uh, and not not be an indication that there's anything super secret going on. Uh, or it could be an indication that, in fact, some of the bits in that file have been altered in order to send a secret message. Yeah. And in in the best case of steganography, you wouldn't have weird noises or yeah. distorted pixels for people to see. Yeah. It would just be so subtle that you would never pick up on it. Yeah. And uh, and that's the reason why you need these disk analysis programs so they can look for things that are below the perceptive level of human beings. Uh, so, again, we often see the two working together. It makes a lot of sense. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about the history of steganography, because there are some gloriously awful and bloody stories. Oh, it gave me the heebie-jeebies just, just reading about them. Yeah, so first we got to go to ancient Greece, which makes sense. We're talking, you know, we're using Greek words, so it makes yep. sense that that a lot of the early cases involve Greek stories. And we're going to be talking a lot about uh, Herodotus. Who, Say that five times fast. Yeah, I can only do it because I listened to the pronunciation and I wrote down a phonetic translation in our notes. That is not a joke. Uh, Herodotus was a Greek historian uh, in the 5th century BCE. And wrote a lot about uh, Greek history and the history of the surrounding areas of Greece. And in fact, his writings were called the histories. Yeah. And or at least some of them. we have to we have to take some of this with a grain of salt because legend got mixed up with history quite a bit. So, Certainly. Uh, in fact, there are some uh, modern accountings that suggest that uh, some of the familial connections he makes in his stories were not necessarily accurate. So. Um, one of the big ones, in fact, the first one I have to talk about is one of those where the story talks about a general named Harpagus who sent a steganogram to Cyrus, who was a king who was going to become the king of kings of Persia. So the, the Persian prince of Persia, not the prince of Persia. No, that's a video game, oh. uh, which is you know, fun, yeah. but not uh, not something we actually need to reference here. Or as bloody as the story. Yeah, the story is far bloodier, in fact, which is odd to think of, depending on which version of Prince of Persia you played and how badly you played it. But uh, Cyrus was going to be the, the king of kings of Persia. So Persia was divided up into several kingdoms. And then you had a, sort of a, an over king who saw over everybody, kind of like King Arthur in, in English lore. Uh, that makes sense. So Cyrus um, was the grandson, according to uh, Herodotus. To another king of kings, uh, Astyagus. And so, uh, Harpagus actually worked for Astyagus. So Astyagus is this king of kings and he has a dream. 
Ooh. And in his dream, his daughter gives birth to a son, and that son grows up to depose Astyagus. So first he ends up marrying his daughter off to a kind of milk toast kind of guy, someone that he thinks is, oh, well, this guy's harmless. Mm-hmm. So any child they have is not going to be a threat to me. Uh, and they have a son named Cyrus, according to Herodotus. Again, other modern accounts suggest that Cyrus and Astyagus were not grandfather and grandson. Yeah, they might have been related, but not like grandfather and grandson. Okay. Particularly since Cyrus ended up marrying um, a daughter of Herodotus, which would have meant he would have married his own aunt, which was not common in those times. Fair enough. So, I mean, possible, but not common. So anyway, in the story, Cyrus is the grandson and Astyagus decides Harpagus needs to go out and kill Cyrus. Okay. Harpagus, though, does not really relish the thought of spilling royal blood. So he takes Cyrus and he gives Cyrus to a shepherd and says, look after this kid uh, and raise him as your own. And I will report back that Cyrus is dead. Harpagus seems like a really decent guy. At least at that point. Yes. So... He goes back, he reports that Cyrus has died, and Astyagus says, yay, ten years later, Astyagus finds out Cyrus is actually alive. So he punishes Harpagus in kind of a Shakespearean awful way, in that in the story, Astyagus gets Harpagus' son, kills him, chops him up, cooks him, serves him to Harpagus as a banquet. Harpagus, oh. and then tells Harpagus, hey, by the way, I hope you like your son, because that's what you're eating. Ew. Uh, Harpagus supposedly then gathered up the remains and gave his son a burial. He was being obedient to the king outwardly, but inwardly had decided that he had had enough and he wanted revenge. So he wanted to report to Cyrus. He, he ended up working very hard to get uh, other leaders of Persia to turn against Asiagus and wait for just the right time to give Cyrus the signal that now is the time to attack. So he needed to send a message to Cyrus saying, we're ready to go when you are. But Astyagus had guards all along the way. So how does he send a message? He gets a bunny. He gets a bunny. A hare, actually. Well, yeah. So hares not, aren't quite as cute as bunnies. No, they're not nearly as cute as bunny rabbits. And this hare was not nearly as cute because it was dead. Yeah, yeah they... They have a, a guy kill a hair. They cut the hair open. They insert the secret message into the hair's stomach, sew the hair back up, and a messenger disguised as a huntsman brings the hair to Cyrus and says, you should cut open this bunny rabbit and get what the delicious things inside are. <laughs> and so Cyrus cuts open the stitches, gets the message, sees that it's time to attack, and that is how, according to Herodotus, Cyrus goes and joins a revolution and overthrows Astyagus, and then Cyrus becomes the king. So uh, there's a long way to go for that story, but it's important to know all the elements to explain why Harpagus was trying to send a coded message in the first place, yeah. or a hidden message. I'm, I'm so glad we have better ways to send hidden messages than in the stomachs of rabbits now. Yeah. So um, here's a, another one. This is another popular story. From Herodotus. This one involves a tyrant named Histias. Which sounds like you're strangling a snake. Yeah. Histias. Uh, who was the ruler of uh, Miletus. And 
this guy was really useful to the king of Persia. The king of Persia loved Histias and decided to invite him back to become a royal advisor. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. Well, at first, Histias thought so, too. But then eventually he thought, you know, I want to go back to being a tyrant of uh, Miletus. Tyrant, by the way, does not necessarily mean evil ruler, but it did mean like having total authority over a, a region. Yeah. Um, so he said he thought, I want to go back to doing what I was doing before, but it would be treason for me to deny the king. So how do I get around this? And he comes up with an even more treasonous way to get around it. He decides that the best way to get back to doing what he was doing before would be to stage a revolution back home uh, and then tell the king, hey, I need to go back there and squash this revolution before it gets out of hand. Because telling the king no is so much less worse than lying to the king right. and telling him no. So he decides he needs to send this instruction to his nephew, who was in charge of Miletus, uh, Aristagoras. And so how does he send the message? Well, he gets a slave, which the Greeks had back yep. then, and tattoos. He shaves the slave's head, tattoos the message on the slave's scalp, then allows the slave's hair to grow back, then sends the slave to uh, Aristagoras with the instruction to tell Aristagoras, hey, you need to shave me and read my head. <laughs> so that's exactly what happens. Aristagoras reads the message, starts a revolution against the Persians. Then uh, Histias tells the king, hey, it, this is going to be a problem. So just send me back and I will go and squish this right away and we'll solve this before it turns into a big problem. And of course, the king goes, you're a, a loyal advisor. Sure. Yeah. So Histias heads on his way back. However, there were some folks who were a little suspicious of Histias and his uh, convenient revolution. And so eventually Histias goes on the run because people are actually after him thinking mm -hmm. that, you know, he's he's committed treason. Uh, Which he has. Yeah, he has done that thing. And so uh, he ends up getting exiled eventually uh, to an island. He becomes a pirate for Arr. a while. And then he's eventually captured by one of the king of Persia's subjects who knows that if he sends Histias back to the king, the king will pardon him. So he just goes ahead and executes Histias right then and there, sends the head of Histias to the king saying, hey, I caught him. I killed him for <laughs> you. And the king actually supposedly gave the head of Histias an honorable burial because he never suspected anything was up. He didn't believe Histias could have committed any kind of treason against him so uh yeah dumb i guess <laughs> or nice or nice not a lot of nice stories in ancient greece uh and then you've got another one I another do. herodotus story another herodotus story i was about to mention it and then i realized that i couldn't actually say his name uh there was an exiled greek named named demeritus mm -hmm. and uh he needed to warn the king of sparta leonidas that King Xerxes I was going to attack them. So he took writing tablets, mm -hmm. which were wood tablets covered in wax. Yeah, and you would scratch a message into the wax. Yeah, and instead he took off all the wax and scratched the message into the wood and then recovered the tablets in wax so that they looked like they were blank tablets, and he sent those to the king to warn him. Uh, but uh, proposedly... No one knew why they were getting these blank tablets. They didn't necessarily know yeah. there was a message. Why are we getting just 
We got plenty of tablets, and no one writes anything of use here in Sparta anyway. Yeah. Uh, supposedly, the queen, Queen Gorgo, figured out what it was, said, you got, you need to take the wax off. I bet there's a message under there, and there were. Um, but it didn't help them because the Spartans were brutally defeated. Uh, and if this story sounds familiar to you, it's because it is the story 300, the comic movie yeah. story. Or- yeah. That's essentially, that's the, the tale, the 300 Spartans who... Yes who tried to hold a pass and managed to delay Xerxes so that the invasion of Greece ultimately would fail, but the Spartans were completely wiped out, yeah. or at least the, the 300 were completely wiped out as a result. Uh, moving forward to Roman times, Tacitus invented a way to use a predecessor of dice to hide messages. So these, these dice-like things, mm-hmm. uh, which... I can't remember the name now. It's like Astrolog Alley or something like that. But I know I've totally mangled that, so I apologize. (laughs) But they had little holes drilled in them. And you could string them together. And in this case, uh, Tacitus was using them to string them together in specific orders to relay different types of messages. But if anyone were stopped with them, they just looked like it was a toy. It didn't look like it was anything of significance. Although they might play with it and mess up the message. That, yeah, if you were to break the thread so that they were no longer threaded together in the proper way, then the message would be lost. Uh, this, by the way, would end up having a, a specific name, a semigram, because it is being used as a non-text-based message. So it, you don't you don't translate it into text so much as you say this series of symbols means this particular thing. Uh, you also have a guy named Johannes Trithemius in the Middle Ages, in the 16th century, actually, who wrote a book titled Steganographia. Yes, uh, which was a stenogram in in and of itself. This I did not know, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it outwardly, it seemed to be a series of writings on magic, but in secret, it contained a message on the treaties of steganography. (laughs) Now, that's really cool that you're like, okay, you got to be smart enough to know that this is a book about secret messages because it itself is a secret message. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really interesting. And then we can skip ahead. I mean, obviously these have been used repeatedly in, in multiple ways. Uh, there's yeah. another great example that during World War I, the German embassy in the United States sent a message to Berlin that used what's called a null cipher. Null ciphers are not very secure at all because no. once you know that there's a possibility, it's very easy to find them. But, Basically, it's when you take the first letter of each word in a message, and that spells out a new message. So here's an example uh, that's often cited. I don't know that this was ever actually sent as a message, but it's always used as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the the full message, which was, or the carrier message, if you will. It was, President's embargo ruling should have immediate notice, grave situation affecting international law. Statement foreshadows ruin of many neutrals. Yellow journals unifying national excitement immensely. See, they really had me until the yellow journals. Like, I was following that message. I knew what they were trying to send. (laughs) Well, they could have been talking about yellow journalism, but that's a different thing anyway. You wouldn't know why a German embassy would write about it. But at any rate, the secret message, if you take those first letters, says Pershing sales from NY, New York, uh, June 1st or June I, uppercase I. Yes. So Pershing was the U.S. general who led American, the American expeditionary forces in World War One. So this would be a message from German, the German embassy to Germany saying, hey, 
this American general is sailing out of New York on this date, expect him to be in the in the European theater within several weeks. That kind yep. of thing. Uh, and now we'll talk about some of the types of steganography. Because there's a whole bunch of yeah. types of steganography. Because really, any way that you can hide a message inside something is technically steganography. Mm-hmm. So these are just some examples, really. It's not an exhaustive list because no. that would be impossible. Yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, there's the old Greek ways we talked about um, in, in history of hiding something inside or under something. A uh, great example is in the Second World War, the British Secret Service hid escape kit pieces in Monopoly games and sent them to the prisoners of war in Germany along with Red Cross supplies. Yeah, so you could you would get these uh, uh, deliveries if you're a prisoner of war, and you know the Germans would say, all right, well, this is just humanitarian aid yeah. or whatever. And as long as it keeps the prisoners mollified, then we'll go ahead and give them to them, not realizing that they were supplying the prisoners with the very tools the prisoners might be able to use to break free, which is pretty interesting. And boy, when the prisoners break free, did they have egg on their face? Yeah. So the the semigrams I talked about earlier, the, the dice that are threaded together, that's just one example. That could be in lots of different versions like iconography or signs or photographs or even – like the placement of items on a desk. So let's say I've got, I could have a webcam set up on my desk, for example, so that people who log into the web could see me, you know, theoretically just working at work. Like that's all I'm doing. But maybe depending upon where my coffee cup is or depending upon where a certain stack of papers happen to be, that might be an actual message itself. So Ariel looking at the webcam might say, oh, well, Jonathan's going to go to... Manuel's Tavern today, because I see where the, the 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 combination of stuff is. I don't know why I would secretly be telling you that. Because all of your fans trying to follow you. Yeah, that's you, it. I'm, I'm surrounded by the thronging fans. who, And Manuel's Tavern is such a low-profile place, <laughs> right? Uh, that's, by the way, if you're not from Atlanta or never been here, Manuel's Tavern is a very popular spot for uh, artists and, and playwrights and yeah. uh, political fans and Sports political fans, figures. Political figures. Yeah. President Obama came here recently. Yep. And it's just um kind of it's kinda of like a like I think of it like cheers. Yeah, it, it's really like cheers, uh with chickens on the roof. Yeah. Yeah, there are chickens on the roof. That that's not that's not a joke. No, it's actually true. They use their eggs for breakfast. They do. Uh another example would be the Cardon Grill. That sounds like a good restaurant. It does, doesn't it? It's a classic example. Uh, it was first proposed in the 15th century. So here's how it works. You've probably seen this. So you take uh, a sheet of clean paper, or in the case of the Middle Ages, parchment, mm-hmm. and you set that down. You take a second sheet and you cut little holes in that sheet in strategic places. You lay the second sheet on top of the first sheet. And then you write in your secret message in those holes. Using the holes is kind of like a, almost like a stencil. Mm-hmm. And so it's only bits and pieces. Sometimes it's, sometimes it might be a word. Sometimes it might just be a single letter. But you do that throughout using the uh, the holes as your guide to write the secret message. Then you take your stencil off and you write in the re- you fill in the rest of the space with a boring message that means, you know, very little in the grand scheme of yeah. things. So uh, only someone who would have a, a part a, a, a comparable stencil. So something that they have a sheet of paper that has the same general holes cut out of it. They could lay that on top of the the full message and read the secret message that's underneath. I actually tried to make a card and grill a while back, back when I was in school, and do a secret message like that. It is harder 
than I imagined it would be because once you put your secret mes- message in, you then have to make sure the rest of your message lines up. Right. You have to make it make enough sense. Like, how do you plan out the rest of your message so that you can do this? Unless you were to create a message from the very beginning mm-hmm. and then you create a grill that fits on top of your existing message that shows what which words are the most important and then you send it. But then you've got to figure out, well, how do I get how do I get the grill? How do I get the 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 stencil to the person I need to send it to? Because if I send both, then clearly the jig is up, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it is a little tricky. Uh, I love this next one you've got. Yeah, this next one, I, I had to double check it because I didn't think it was possibly real. But uh, people would knit Morse code into garments and then send those garments on the couriers for people to decipher. And you'd think it was just like a, a knit line of... Yeah, just a pattern. Just a pattern. Yeah. On clothing. I I think that's super cool. I want to start doing that. When I have kids, I'm going <laughs> to knit Morse code into all their clothes. That'll be fantastic. Things like, things like do your chores. Do your chores. Yeah. Uh, if this child is found, please <laughs> send them to. Well, that, that's a very... I, I like that you expect spies <laughs> to come across your children, because I can't think of anyone else who typically uses Morse code on a frequent basis. Uh I like the next one too, which is also pretty cool. The idea yeah. that just through through formatting a document, you can create a secret message. Yeah, you can um, add an extra space, which most people don't notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do a lot of editing at my job, and so I often see extra spaces at before after a period or before a certain word, like before a hyphen or after a hyphen. Uh, but you can add those extra spaces before the important words, and any word that you find that has an extra space before it, that's part of your cipher. Nice. I've yeah. also seen where you could do things like subtly change the font. Yes. Like really subtle, like courier to courier new, which is at, at a casual glance, it looks the same. But if you're paying attention, you can tell the difference. And thus you put the important words in the different font. And as long as the message is like as long as your carrier message is long enough and your secret message is short enough, people are probably not going to pick up on it. Yeah. You can also vaguely change the skew as well, although that one's a little bit more noticeable. Right, right. So it's, you know, some of these, again, can get pretty risky if your secret message is pretty long. This is true in general, right? The mm-hmm. the longer your carrier message, the more secure the secret is going to be, assuming that the secret is not itself very long. If I have, uh, like, if I'm trying to hide a secret message in a tweet, that's going to be hard because they only have 140 characters to start with. Yeah. And then if I'm trying to hide a message in that, then it has to be a pretty small message. Otherwise, it's just going to look like a tweet. It, like, it would probably have to be uh, a cryptogram. Yeah. Where individual letters mean full things or a semigram or. Right. Or or like uh, just a, a regular code where someone has a code book and they know that when I use this word, that that means something else. Yeah. Yeah, in that case, that would that would be more of a code than a, a, a than than a secret message in this sense. But there are other ones too. There's also uh, invisible ink, which is a thing. I mean, mm-hmm. people have actually used it for reals, and uh, also it's usually called uh, sympathetic ink in the biz because you would have a regular message written out in normal ink that would have you know very boring, you know, no reason to raise suspicion. You would write the actual secret message in invisible ink, kind of between the lines. And then the person who receives it would have to treat it however they need to treat it, usually like adding a little heat or maybe adding a certain chemical to bring out the invisible ink so that you can make it legible. And then you would be able to read the secret stuff. 
And another way to hide messages would be through photography. Yeah, like the Pueblo incident, which as far as steganography goes, is kind of like a semigram where a uh, crew of the USS Pueblo was captured by North Korea right before the Vietnam War. They were uh, an electronic intelligence ship. And they were forced to take propaganda photos. And in those propaganda photos, they all rested with their hands on their faces or their shoulders in a very nonchalant way. And it was actually a code for the U.S. to decipher. Wow. That's pretty incredible. It really is. So similar to what I was describing with the webcam, the idea mm-hmm. of just uh, having this this foresight that, you know, clearly you thought ahead so that the person who sees it knows what the meaning is behind whatever you're you know, whatever the image is. Yes, and there, there, there are more complicated versions of that. For instance, there you can systematically change pixel colors to correspond with letters in the alphabet, and then only change like the first pixel every square centimeter or millimeter in the photo, or every so many lines, and people can get the message that way. That yeah, that's definitely really very subtle, especially you know. If you're using things like black and white photos where you can you can change those things and they're not called out as much yeah. because you could make it like a square that was going to be very dark, a much lighter gray. And if you know what to look for, then you could see the pattern. But otherwise, you might just think, oh, this is just poor developing or whatever. It's yeah. it's the it's a graininess of the photo. Um, you could use an existing piece of text like a newspaper. This was used during the Cold War all the time where. Uh, you would use like a, a a pen to put tiny holes above important letters. And then so you would grab the newspaper, hold it up so you could see where the holes were. And that would give you the letters to spell out or sometimes a full word to spell out whatever the secret message was. Um, or you might use a dot with invisible ink if you wanted to make sure people like could pick up the newspaper and hold it up and not see light coming through at yeah. strategic locations. Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, you would have to treat the the newspaper to whatever it was that, you know, would bring the invisible ink out. Dots are really important in steganography. Like, they're used in many different ways. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, I actually got to see examples of this because I went to the Spy Museum, which is in Washington, D.C., and they had examples of micro dots. And micro dots are, kind of think of it like microfilm. It's tiny little bits of film that look like a period. That's how small they are. And unless you were to hold it up and see that it was, in fact, film and not just a solid blob of ink, you would never have suspected of being anything other than a punctuation mark. And it can hold an incredible amount of information because, you know, there there are ways to enlarge photos. We're yes. talking about the old film style, right? Mm-hmm. This doesn't this. I mean, you can do it digitally, too, but we're talking old school. So there are ways where you could take a photo and then blow it up and blow it up and blow it up so that you get like a poster size or larger. Well, there are also ways where you could shrink it down and shrink it down and shrink it down. And uh, I was reading one way that got so technical that I I gave up on the chance of trying to even describe it. But ultimately, they said it was uh, 210 times smaller than the original photograph. Wow. And so you could take a picture of, say, a document, top secret document, and then you shrink it down to this size. So it looks like it's a, you know, a period. You just cut out a little piece of the paper. You insert this in. And to casual glance, it seems like it's just a regular sheet of paper yeah. with with punctuation. Yeah. Uh, but when you are in the right hands, which might be the wrong hands, depending on what side you're on, then you can find out 
what is actually there. This was a process that was created by a man named Emmanuel Goldberg um, and used it for spying and uh, very popular, particularly among Soviet Union spies at the time. I would imagine nowadays if you used microdots in a digital format, it would be a lot harder to detect yeah. because you couldn't hold up the paper and see that something was amiss. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, – it, it's – the, the game has changed significantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, by this time, obviously, we're talking about something a lot more subtle than a dead rabbit. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> Thank goodness. But but sometimes we can have things that are just as irritating as maybe a dead rabbit would yeah, be. Such as spam mimicry, uh, disguising messages that you want to send as spam emails or nonsensical musings or whatnot. Uh, you do this by messing up the placement of the punctuation or the type of the fonts or the grammar of the message as a means to communicating the secret. Yeah, I love this. I the, I actually saw an example of this where uh, someone used grammar as the key indicator. And so you would read the message. And whenever you found a grammatical error, that was actually an indicator that this is where you need to pay attention. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of interesting. Well, uh, you would think it would be easy to decipher, but with as much spam email as everybody gets nowadays, yeah. you don't even think to look. Well, right. Yeah. You just, especially if you were to broadcast this so that it's not something that just one person gets, mm-hmm. because again, we're all used to getting that spam. Most of us would never even look twice at it. We would just see, oh, it's a spam message and delete it. So you could actually have security by sending it to lots of people because then it looks like it's, quote unquote, legitimate spam. That seems like a weird thing to say, <laughs> but that's that's where it is. Yeah. Now, we're getting into the more modern versions where this is where we need things like uh, a disk analysis software in yes. order to discover it. So digital files, let's talk about these in general. And this can refer to pretty much any kind of digital file, like audio, video, images, any of that sort of stuff. So... We all know digital files are made up ultimately of strings of ones and zeros. Binary code. Yeah. So here's the thing. Some of those bits are more important than others. Not all bits are equal. Some of those bits are not so important. So if you were to pick the least significant bits or LSBs, Mm -hmm. you could do something called the least significant bit insertion, which is where you alter a bit. And by altering a series of bits... You can create a message. Now, it takes several bits to make just one character in the alphabet. Mm -hmm. So you have to be very succinct with your messages because the more of these you mess up, the more likely that it will be detectable by somebody who's paying really close attention. Either close attention to your activities or close attention to the file. So if you do it well and and you're very careful with it, most people are never going to notice. And this is what we talk about when someone posts an image to a public forum and there's a hidden message in those bits. Uh, You would never, ever know to look. Yeah. And generally speaking, you want to go, if you're making one of these, you want to go with a lossless format as opposed to lossy compressed versions because technically you would normally create this this message in the lossless uh, style and put it in there and then allow it to be compressed so if it's a lossless format that then is compressed, you don't lose any information that way. Uh, these compression algorithms are very good at keeping the original information intact. So that way you know your message is not going to get altered. Mm-hmm. Lossy formats 
the way lossy formats work is they look for information that doesn't seem important and then they drop it. And that's one of the ways they compress the file size. So if you put a secret message in a file that's then going to be compressed in this way, your secret message could be part of the stuff that gets dropped or altered, and then you can't communicate. So if you do want to post a picture with a secret message on Facebook, you should use a GIF instead of a JPEG. Right. Unless you insist on pronouncing it GIF, in which case I don't even want to talk to you. Did I say GIF? No, you said GIF. Oh, thank goodness. See, that's the way I pronounce it, too. I don't – because it – if you put a T at the end of that, it's a gift. Yes. And G stands for graphic. That's a G sound, not a J. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> but that's, again, not the only type of digital information that could be altered, right? Yeah. I mean, you can also alter the audio files. I think we talked about this already by Yeah, but I mean, not, not just, not just digital audio, like not just a MP3, mm-hmm. but even VoIP calls. Yeah. So voice over internet protocol calls. Yeah, you could. And uh, there's also uh, watermarking. Yes, there is. Digital watermarking, uh, which is used to protect intellectual property and you, uh, in, by embedding information like the creator and the copyright and et cetera into the file. Um, and that way, if people tried to claim it as their own, they could say, nope, here's my watermark. See, it's got all my little information in there. Sure. Um, they also use digital water- watermarking in a method called fingerprinting, where they put a different, unique watermark on each copy of the document or information they send out. And that way, if someone tries to copy it or send it out themselves to people who shouldn't get it, they can say, oh, all of these have that unique watermark. So we yeah, know who sent it. Bobby's in trouble because this is the version that we sent to Bobby and everyone else got a different uh, digital watermark, so we yeah. narrowed it down. We know who is at fault, or we know who was uh, compromised. Their security yes. might have been compromised. Yes, now, that's really cool. Uh, yeah. Then we've got subliminal channels, which is not probably what you think it is. It it, it isn't like it's, messages secretly in movies or they, playing my music backwards. Yeah, it's or, nothing like that. No, it's not darn. like John is dead. Miss him. Miss him. It's none <laughs> of that. Uh, no, this is something that was uh, proposed in 1984 uh, by a mathematician and cryptographer named Gustavus J. Simmons. Uh, and Simmons poet proposed something called the prisoner's problem. And it's a thought experiment. This is the way the thought experiment works. Okay, I'm ready. You've got two accomplices who are captured during the uh, while they're trying to commit a crime. Bob and Jen. Okay. Bob and Jen are caught. Uh, usually it's Bob and Alice, actually. So we got half of them already. But Bob and Jen are caught uh, and they're put into the same jail. But Bob is put in one cell. Jen is put on a cell on the opposite end of the jail. So there's no way for them to communicate directly. Mm-hmm. The warden is told, hey, these two want to be able to talk. What? How do we do that? And the warden says, all right, here's the deal. You will be allowed to communicate to each other, but I get to see Everything you send to one another. So that way, if there's any messages about trying to break out of jail, I'm going to get it immediately and you're going to be stopped. That's a nice warden because I'd just be like, you guys can't talk to each other. Deal with it. (laughs) Well, it gets nicer, actually, because Bob and Jen say, all right, but we want to make sure that our messages are genuinely coming from the other person. And we want... In other words, we want to make sure that you, Mr. Warden, aren't going in and messing up our messages. So we want to be able to authenticate that our messages come from each other. So we have to we want to be able to come up with a way to say it's essentially a signature to say, yes, this actually came from Bob or yes, this actually came from Jen. And the warden says, well, all right, if you if you agree to my terms, I agree to your terms. We can all do this. 
What Simmons said was, if you're willing to give up a little of that authentication security, Mm -hmm. you could take some of the authentication message. Let's say that it's one fifth as long as your actual message still would be really long for authentication. But let's say so. Let's say that then you change some of that authentication, which normally would look like it's random, like it's supposed to look random. So that Mm -hmm. way, uh, you know, it's it's not. If it's predetermined in a way that everyone knows about, like if everyone knows the key and the algorithm, then there's no authentication yeah. there. Uh, but instead of it actually being random, it just looks random. And you've actually changed some of the authentication message so that that's where the secret message is. It's not within the body of the actual message. It's in the authentication. Uh, now, that was just a thought experiment, but turned out that that's actually the way a lot of this is uh, a lot of uh, uh, steganography happens today, too, is that it ends up being in that authentication, kind of like the digital watermark mm-hmm. rather than in the message itself. And that is an example, another example of how steganography and cryptography work together. Yeah, because authentication is all about cryptography. Yeah. So it's it's manipulating the two. So let's talk about people who actually use this stuff. Uh, not a big surprise. Spies. Yeah. That's yeah. a, that's a big one. In fact, again, at the spy museum, I saw example after example of this kind of stuff. If you've never been to the spy museum, by the way, if you ever go to Washington DC, I recommend it. Um, I recommend going early because it's a very, it's, it's a museum that fills up with kids and kids are great despite what I say about them. <laughs> Uh, but they they do make it difficult to maneuver through the museum and see everything. It sounds like a lot of the stuff in the spy museum might be pretty uh, technical for a kid. Yeah, it can definitely go over a kid's head. There's a lot of reading because there are a lot of, of descriptions that explain what the various devices and pictures and everything, what they mean. And there's some very interesting videos, but for kids, they'd be really boring. Yeah. So it's one of those things where like the idea of spies is really super sexy. And exciting. And, oh, James Bond. Kids are going to have fun. Uh, but ultimately, I think you need to be like a teenager or older, maybe maybe not necessarily a teenager, but like 11 or 12 to really kind of start thinking, oh, this is kind of cool. Yeah. Younger, I think it gets lost on you. Although they have some cool interactive stuff, too. But you don't get to play with like shoe guns or anything. No, you don't get to play with shoe guns, but you do get to assume a secret identity. Ooh. They give you a secret identity and you have to remember certain facts about yourself so that if you're ever stopped and questioned, you can answer with your cover. So if you forget your cover, you're caught. That sounds so... So that part's really I cool. I want to do that. So uh, so here's an example of spies who use steganography. Uh, in 2009 and 2010, the FBI arrested 10 covert Russian sleeper agents who had been communicating in multiple ways, including steganography. Uh, they'd be posting those photos that I was talking about. Same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They would post photos to public forums, which, in fact, included these secret messages that could be picked up if you ran them through uh, analysis. But, you know, if you use that software, you could pick them up. But otherwise, you probably wouldn't notice. Yeah. They also used other things like Invisible Ink. Mm-hmm. And they would do secret uh, bag swaps, like classic spy stuff. Like, we'll meet in the trade station. I will give you a bag. You will walk away. No, yeah, but they got discovered because of the photos they were posting, right? Well, they, they that and the fact that, all right, so the photos, you had to run them through a a particular piece of software to decode what the message was, to pull out the the letters that were hidden inside these photos, right? Because one of the problems with 
with binary code is we humans, we don't read it so well. No. So that's why we need software to be able to pull that stuff and say, all right, here are the bits that are important. Here's what it translates into. So one of the things they needed was security to make sure people couldn't access the uh, the software that would decode everything. So they had a password that all of them had to share. It was the same password they would type in to uh, the software to allow them to decrypt something. Mm-hmm. And it was a 27-character long password. So that's pretty secure. That is. Except someone wrote it down. So the FBI gets hold of the written password. By the way, folks, if you write your password down and someone finds it, guess what? You're not being secure. Yeah. I don't care how long your password is yeah. or how many upper and lowercase letters you throw in there. Uh, so the FBI found the the password. They were able to intercept messages. They were able to round up these 10 sleeper agents. And ultimately, they were exchanged in a prisoner swap with Russia. Uh, Russia had four prisoners three of whom had been accused of high treason, all of whom were Russian citizens. Uh, but they had all been colluding in some way or another or been accused of colluding with the United States or the United Kingdom. So these four were swapped out for the 10 that were found in America. And it was all done kind of quietly because there were still, I mean, there still are today, uh, tensions between the United States and Russia, mm-hmm. and no one wanted to make that worse. Yeah, man, could you imagine being one of the 10 agents and you're worth not even being half a person? Well, and not only that, but those 10 people who went back to Russia, they were not technically put in prison, but they were detained for weeks for debriefing. So things did not go well for them. Not for all of them anyway. No, especially probably not for the one who wrote down the password. The password, right. (laughs) So then we have uh, examples in military and government. Now, governments traditionally aren't crazy about steganography software getting out into the wild because they don't want people to be able to use it. Yeah, um, especially uh, foreign countries. There actually have been laws put in place to keep us from sending strong encryption software overseas. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of debate in government about whether or not it should be legal to export uh, encryption software. And there's been a lot of argument on either case. And not only that, the government wasn't crazy about having public arguments about this or having arguments on the public record, because that would mean people would find out that such a thing even existed. Yeah. And they were worried that even people finding out that such software was possible would create more incidents of people using it. So there was a probably has probably. Yeah. But but it was a it was a sort of a catch twenty two. You know, they were like, well, we need to talk about this, but we can't talk about it because if people know we talked about it, they'll know that it exists. Um, I have a quote from a 1992 meeting about how to handle this that said a substantial amount of material is not appropriate for a public meeting. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like mm-hmm. we we can't debate this because if it's on the public record, it will cause problems. Yeah. Um, now, despite that. There ultimately there would be uh, allowances for exporting uh, this encryption software because businesses have to yeah. do business. Yeah. Um, and we want our businesses to be secure. Yeah. So then we have uh, terrorists who also have used steganography. Mm-hmm. The uh, there was there were reports after the 9/11 attacks that Al Qaeda had been using steganography techniques to communicate. They were actually supposedly using pornography. 
they were hiding their messages there because who would think to look for secret messages in that? Classy, okay. Yeah. Classy. Very, very much so. Yeah. And also they, they were thought to be less likely to have used them because it goes against their very worldview, but that's what made it the yeah. perfect place to hide a message. And, and people were worried that maybe they got the, the tools from us, right? Yeah. They were worried that they got the encryption tools from those same companies that had argued that they should be allowed to export their products. Uh, and it, in fact, it created a lot of, of soul searching on the parts of those people. They said, well, are we responsible? And ultimately, they came up with the conclusion that even if a ban had been put in place, even if they had never been allowed to sell their products, mm-hmm. someone else would have come up with the same thing because there was a need. And so once you identify a need, someone's going to come up with a solution. That and there are people who send stuff they shouldn't send all the time. Just just the challenging authority aspect of it. They're like, oh, we shouldn't be using this or giving it to other people. So we're going to. Right. Right. Yeah. There's the whole argument of information wants to be free. Yes. And with that, you would say like, well, if you're the harder you try to keep information away from people, the harder people will try to make sure they get that information. But having encryption software uh, go out to foreign places and being developed in, in other places than the U.S. means that we have drive to create better encryption. Right. And decryption and decryption. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it actually it pushes de, it pushes the art forward, and this is something we also see in artificial intelligence, where we see as one part of security gets better, uh, then people find new ways to make that security vulnerable, and then the security gets better. And while individual attacks are terrible, or individual like vulnerabilities are terrible, the overall story is that. Stuff gets better over time, mm-hmm. but that's a you know that's a hard view to take depending yeah. upon the the particulars. In this case, a very hard one to take. Uh, also, writers and journalists have used steganography sometimes just to entertain. Like, uh, there's this guy uh, Brown Charlie. No, Dan. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He wrote he wrote a couple of books like uh, Angels and Demons and mm-hmm. Da Vinci Code. It almost said Da Vinci's Notebook. That's totally different. <laughs> no, but really good. Yeah, yeah. Some we're familiar with their work. They're, but it's not the same. It's thing. not the same. Thing. Yeah. They might have messages in their music. They, well, I'm sure there are. There are some, probably some very important messages and things like uh, the Magic Castle in the Sky song. Yeah, and, yeah. And title of the song. But um, yeah. So Dan Brown, of course, very famous for writing these books, and there were lots of examples of steganography. In fact. Key plot points revolving around uh, steganography and various kinds of r- religious iconography and other mm-hmm. elements, too. I remember in Angels and Demons, I think it was Angels and Demons, where I got irritated by one of them because it was a brand, like as, as in something you would brand an animal with, uh-huh. you know, heat up and Not iron. like Levi's or... Right. Uh, and it, it spelled out uh, Illuminati. And then you discover that if you turned it 180 degrees, so in other words, if you turned it upside Upside down, down. it's still spelled Illuminati. And then the suggestion was because it was because the way the the font Ah. was designed and the way the way it was uh, put was that only someone with the secret Illuminati knowledge could ever make this thing. And I thought that's obviously crap because you made it, Dan Brown, in order for (laughs) this to happen. So. Uh, I don't know how you could suggest that only one human being would or only one group of human beings would be clever enough to do this. That's demonstrably false. But anyway, 
That's fiction. It was meant for, yeah, it was meant to be a good story. Uh, also, artists, obviously, very important in steganography, particularly in the old ways where you had to hide a message within something, mm-hmm. you know. And sometimes it was just done for entertainment. Sometimes it was done for specific purposes to hide things. Um, I had heard that Da Vinci hid a lot of secret messages in his artwork. Yeah, we hear, we hear that from Da Vinci himself sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Ariel and I have both worked for the Georgia Renaissance Festival, and another a mutual friend of ours plays a young Da Vinci. He plays him very well. Yeah. So if you ask him about his secret messages, he has hilarious responses for that. But the the what you're alluding to, of course, that, I mean, there are a lot of theories. Yeah. I should say hypotheses about secret messages hidden in things like the Last Supper. Yes. Which yes. is one of the most famous paintings Da Vinci ever produced. Uh, and of course, uh, the Da Vinci Code ended up talking a lot about that, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, one of the hypotheses I saw, which was interesting, was put forward by an uh, uh, IT guy, an informational, uh, information technology professional, who had created a mirror image of the, the Last Supper. So essentially took, like, imagine you have Photoshop, mm-hmm. and you copy the image, but then you flip it. So now it's, it's inverted the other way. And then you make it translucent, and then you lay it back down on top of the original image. So now you've got this doubled image on top of one another. Mm-hmm. And then said, look at all the interesting things that pop up when you do this. <laughs> there were figures on either side that were said to look like Knights Templar. There was uh, in the center, in front of Jesus, there appeared to be a chalice. Like perhaps it's the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. And this kind of thing. And that there appeared to be a figure standing behind Jesus holding a baby. Uh, a lot of other elements that were supposedly uh, brought to light. But that raises the question, one, how could da Vinci have done this himself? Now, yeah. he was known for mirror writing, where he could write with both hands and he could write right to left and left to right yeah, simultaneously. He would have had to have painted two pictures left to right and right <laughs> to left at the same time and laid them over each other. He would have to paint two identical yes. pictures. Yeah. And, and who would ever find out about this? I mean... There's no way to to see the message. The whole point of steganography is to communicate to someone. Yeah. If no one knows that there's a message there and no one knows how to get that message, you're not communicating. No. You're just shouting. You are. Uh, I mean, he could have put that message in there just to or not put a message in there, but put something in there to seem like a message just to mess with people. That's possible. But, yeah, most art historians kind of dismiss these various hypotheses. Doesn't mean that they're all False. It may mean, you know, there may have been things that da Vinci threw into some, uh, either his sketches or his paintings or whatever that were either just amusements or, you know, they weren't intended to be anything yeah. secret. It was just something that he, he incorporated into the design. It's possible. And, and, you know, depending upon the guy, probable. Da Vinci was was a bit of an eccentric. Yes, so. he was. Uh, isn't there an article about this on yes. the Works site? Uh, the article is is uh, how the Da Vinci Code doesn't work. So if you want to know more about that. Yeah, there's also an article about are there hidden messages in The Last Supper? We have articles on both of those things. So you should definitely check those out at HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, then there are other examples. Like one of my favorites is Mad Magazine's Fold-In. Mm-hmm which was created by the writer and artist uh, Al Jaffe. Yes. Who created it originally in 1964. And it's been in practically every Mad Magazine since then. 
Wow. And if you've never seen a fold-in on Mad Magazine, then uh, – and I'm talking about the actual magazine, not the not television the- series – not Mad TV, and not a digital copy of the magazine. No, no, you need the you need the physical one. It is the the inside back cover is the fold in, and it has two points, and you're supposed to fold one point over to the second point, and it creates a new image. So when you look at it normally, it's one image, mm-hmm. and it's the setup for a joke. And when you do the fold, then it's the punchline to that joke. And usually, it's it's a twist on whatever the big picture is. And actually, yeah. Jaffe said. If I didn't have to worry about the big picture as opposed to the little picture, I could turn out like 12 of these a day. But getting them to work together takes a lot more planning. And the way he did it, he drew them all by hand on a surface that did not fold. Wow. So it had to look right when it was folded. But he, while he was drawing it, couldn't fold it to make sure it was working. After after I encountered my first fold in, in a Mad Magazine, I actually went into a Where's Waldo book and tried to do it in there, and it didn't work. No? No. Didn't find Waldo any faster? No. I didn't find any secret punchlines either. (laughs) (laughs) I was a little disappointed. You did, however, ruin a Where's Waldo book, so (laughs) there's that. Uh, Another Mad Magazine contributor, Sergio Aragones, he used to draw a comic book called Grew the Wanderer. Mm-hmm. which was about – it's very cartoony. If yeah. you've ever seen Sergio Aragonez's art style, you know it's cartoony. Yeah. Uh, and it was about a buffoonish uh, barbarian character, very dim-witted character named Gru, G-R-O-O, and very silly. But he would hide a message in every comic book. Uh, usually he said, this is the secret message. <laughs> or something like, good job, you found the secret message. But it would always be incorporated into the artwork in some way. Like in some cases, it would be written into the scroll work on a really elaborate uh, uh, fretboard for a lute, something like that. So you would have to really look for it. And again, if you didn't know there was a message there, you probably never would have seen it. Yeah, I feel like a lot of comics have done that here and there. If you look really closely, you can find I know there are some comics who hide their name yeah. in pictures and the artwork as well. But there are other people who use them, too. Yeah, like system administrators, um, just to make encryption extra secure, like we've talked about before with yep. authentication codes. Um, and then, like, people who just want to protect their intellectual property. You can even do it for your own personal journal. If, if you write in a diary and you don't want anybody to read it, you can yeah. read, read what you really want to say. You can hide it in there. Right. So the stuff that you write could be... You know, whatever, but the actual meaning, the things that you truly want to preserve for yourself, mm-hmm. you could hide away from from pe- prying eyes. Yeah. So uh, if you, you know, if you if you're tired of losing that little key <laughs> to your lockable journal, uh, I know I gave up years ago. I have no idea what's yeah. in that book anymore. Um, uh, probably best left work. unknown. Probably. You know, my past is a shady one at best. So that kind of wraps up this discussion about steganography, what it is, who uses it, you know, what goes into it. It is a fascinating field. I mean, again, the idea of creating a way to communicate without anyone ever being aware that it was a, 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 an intentional communication is, is, I mean, it's kind of, kind of awesome. It really is. And the numerous ways that people have come up with to do steganography is, it's just mind blowing. I'm yeah. not nearly that creative. No, I, well, mostly I don't have a lot of secret messages to send to people, so I don't have a whole lot of occasion to think on it. But, yeah, it really does show people's ingenuity to come up with new ways to hide things. Well, 
Ariel, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Thank you so much for letting me join you, Jonathan. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, guys, if you want to hear more of Ariel's stuff, we actually do a podcast together, the Large Nerdron Collider podcast. Yes. It's all about geeky things. Yeah. It's geek culture. It's uh, a lot of movies, comic books, television mm-hmm. shows, geek news. Uh, also, Space. we do we do a video series as well. That's the, It's also called the Large Nerdron Collider. It's a little different. Yeah, it's it's uh, taking two geeky topics that we love and mashing them together into this new wonderful horrible creation. Yeah, I think my favorite. Uh, I write a lot of the scripts, and I think my favorite that I ever wrote, which is I know it's kind of a jerk thing to say, <laughs> but I think my favorite one I ever wrote was one about um, Game of Thrones and Firefly. What would happen if you combined the two? Yeah, and the answer is just a lot of death. Yeah, yeah. So spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get attached to anybody. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that video series is on YouTube. You can check that out as well. And of course, if you want to suggest a topic, perhaps it's one that I can address in years to come. Uh, sorry, Peter, uh, that took so long for me to respond to your email. Uh, you can send me a message. That email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three of those is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.